0: Creative Babble. Previously on Pretend. George Wayne Smith really believed that the end of the world was months away. In order to survive the rapture, he needed cash and he needed it fast. George Smith and his friend Chris Harvin decided to rob a bank in Norco, California. And just like in the movies, these bank robbers charged into the bank and demanded all the money except it was Friday afternoon and the vault was pretty much empty. On their way out of the bank, they blasted away at the sheriff's deputy arriving at the scene. the robbers were armed to the teeth. This is Peter Houlihan, author of the book titled Norco 80, the true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in
1: American history. There was over 500 rounds fired, 200 of them shot at Belaski alone, and they hit his vehicle 46 times, wounding him in five five different places, once badly in the elbow. Uh, all three of the responding deputies had their vehicle struck multiple times. There were bullets in citizens' cars in houses, into storefronts. Everything in that intersection was hit with gunfire. Five civilians had been injured. The Riverside County Sheriff's deputies
0: were completely overwhelmed in the firefight. They really never even stood a chance. So let's pick up the story where we last left off. George Wayne Smith and his buddies managed to flee the scene and are on the way to get their cold cars parked a few miles away. But how did this chaotic chase end 60 miles east in a remote canyon heading towards a Mojave desert? I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. I want to tell you about a service that i just started using it's called betterhelp.com and i have to tell you i'm super impressed i mean it was easy to set up and in just a few minutes i was matched with a counselor who specializes in the area that i wanted to talk about i can't tell you how great it felt to just get my thoughts out in the messaging feature i was able to organize my thoughts before i spoke to my counselor and the best part is it's safe and secure and also it's super convenient I'm able to get help on my schedule and pace. You can even schedule a chat or a phone conversation with your therapist. So if you're feeling depressed, stressed out, having relationship problems, or any concerns, you should really try this out. This is not a crisis hotline. These are more than 3,000 real U.S. licensed therapists working on your schedule. You should give it a spin. Pretend listeners get 10% off your first month with a discount code, PRETEND. Go to betterhelp.com slash Pretend. Before George Smith ever stepped foot in the Security Pacific Bank in Norco, he was just an ordinary guy with a blue collar job. So how did he ever convince anyone to go along with this crazy plan? Well, he found another like-minded friend who he could talk to. His name was Chris Harvin. Chris Harvin and George Smith worked as landscapers for the city parks. Here's Peter Houlihan again.
1: And they got along from the start. They had similar interests. Uh, they were interested in guns, they were interested in survivalism, and they were interested in smoking pot. And they would just talk and talk and talk all day about their beliefs, about their interests, and sneaking off to get stoned every once in a while.
0: I would imagine that when he's talking to Chris, that he's having all these end of the world conversations with him. Did uh, Did Chris
1: also have those types of beliefs? Well, Chris was certainly a different breed of cat than George Smith. He did have doomsday scenario beliefs, but he was not religious, particularly. He was not political, and he was not ideological, and George could be all three of those things. However, uh, Chris was a bit of a troublemaker. He'd been booted out of the army after two months, he uh, he, act- he actually was honorably discharged, but he purposely got himself booted out, uh, as opposed to George spending uh, two years with an honorable discharge and some positive recognition. George Smith and Chris Harbin couldn't agree on
0: why the world was going to end, but they could agree on one thing.
1: But if there was a commonality between the beliefs in George and Chris, it was that there was a there was going to be a, a collapse of society, in which only the well prepared and the well armed would survive.
0: Sure. Looking back, George Smith was a disturbed individual. But back then, he had a wife and a kid, and on the surface, everything seemed fine.
1: Uh, he was a all- Great father, he was a great husband, but Hannah never really had a bad thing to say about George. George Smith's wife Hannah was nine years older than George. You know, Hannah was a, a serious young woman in her 30s, and George was only 23 years old. And for Hannah, sort of George's grandiose plans, particularly the amount of time and money he was devoting to uh, preparing for the apocalypse, uh, were no longer charming to her. She saw it as a drain on family resources uh, and it really strained the relationship. And George was deeply hurt by this as well. The way he looked at it, and he was not wrong. He was, he'd always been responsible. He'd been a great provider. He was loving, he worked two jobs. He was a karate instructor as well as working at the parks uh, service. So he was deeply uh, disillusioned and hurt by this. And eventually they did go their separate ways but uh, there was no deep animosity towards each other ever. George's breakup with Hannah was really the start of downturns in personal fortune for both Chris Harvin and George. Uh, They both lost their jobs. They both uh, experienced divorces. Uh, They were separated from their children for the most part. So their their lives are
0: kind of falling apart. Not only do they think that the end of the world is coming, but their marriages are ending. They're running out of money. I mean, things are getting pretty intense, right? So both these guys, they start preparing,
1: right? They're they're starting to build a plan to survive. And it really kind of... Uh, especially with George, was really the catalyst to a ramping up of his end times beliefs. And both of them turned their focus to converting this house in Mira Loma as just a one-story, three-bedroom stucco affair with a backyard of a cinder block wall. But they, turned, they began to turn it into a fortress. They strung barbed wire uh, around the perimeter of the fence uh, they nailed in th- uh, carpet tacks so that anybody trying to climb over would uh, would shred their fingers on it. Uh, they began to increase the amount of guns they had on hand. And probably the most profound feature was a pit. They had begun to dig... 10 feet down from the backyard and it went down 10 feet and then it extended underneath the foundation of the house to the garage. And that was not only to be a a bomb shelter, but also an escape tunnel should they need to escape either from the house to the backyard or from the backyard back to the house. And here's where like the
0: logic um, might not make sense to a lot of people, because if the end of the world is coming, you don't really need money do you? But I guess they saw it that way. They needed to be prepared with
1: cash, right? Yeah. Well, a, a couple things for Chris Harvin it's pretty simple. He's looking at uh, social collapse more than he's looking at or or, or a uh, or a cataclysmic event of many different varieties, uh, which would indeed create a social collapse and 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 the type of society uh, where you would need to survive and people would be without food and medical attention and it would be every man for himself, a complete breakdown in uh, in law and order. So they didn't see it as a entire extermination of mankind necessarily both in their in, in several ways saw that there would be a period which would need to be survived but um the ultimate goal particularly for George Smith, was he wanted to buy a cabin up in the mountains of Utah or Colorado, where he could gather together all of his loved ones, have the weapons and the food and all the provisions to survive this cataclysmic period. And uh, he certainly did not have the money for that. When his bank account began to dwindle from unemployment, he began to have a desperation in him that he needed to accomplish that and the penalty for not being able to uh, to secure the cash to do that would be not only his death but also that of all of his loved ones
0: so let's go back to the scene outside the security pacific bank in norco The bank robbers have fled the scene. They're making their way to the cold cars parked a few miles away. And for a few minutes, no one was chasing them. Riverside Dull, yellow pickup has fled with two hostages northbound on Hamner. But eventually, every cop in the surrounding area was on their tail. There's all these cops chasing them at this point. You know, who gets to them next? I mean, who, who's the closest one to get to these robbers?
1: The first deputy to encounter them is Daryl Reed, headed southbound on Hamner, and he takes fire and is shot in the knee. And that is very close to where the getaway cars are. And at that point, Chris Harvin decides they can't stop there.
0: They pass the cold cars. What now? It's time for plan B. Head towards George's house in the next town over. Deputy Rolf Parks is joining the pursuit. Remember him? He was the officer issuing a speeding ticket when he got the call.
2: As, as they're leaving the city, they encounter uh, Deputy Daryl Reed, who's, who's uh, coming into Norco. He's not sure what the, what kind of vehicle they're in. And before he knows it, he gets shot without even knowing what, what happened to him. He gets shot through the door uh, in the left
0: knee. At this point, Rolf Parks still hasn't caught up with the robbers. Yeah and I, I would imagine that you're all you're just taking it all in trying to make sense out of it and also yeah. that there's probably not a lot of protocol back then.
2: No there's no there's no training for uh, defending yourself with, you know against one person ass- that has an assault rifle much less four. The vehicle is
3: heading on
0: towards Atlanta.
2: This is a lot to listen to, you know, all, all the things that are going on at this time. Because a lot of people are talking at once. Glenn's talking, uh, Chuck's talking, uh, dispatch is talking, and, all, and, you know, literally probably another 20 units are, are talking uh, uh, as to how to set up and uh, getting into Norco.
0: Deputy Parks is seconds away from closing in on these bad guys. He's driving down a two-lane road headed to a town called Miraloma. Here's Peter Houlihan.
1: Rolf Parks has been responding from a different part of town, and he decides he ha- he knows where he might be able to intercept this truck. So he pulls down Holmes Avenue and positions himself there and suddenly realizes that he is about to come head to head with escaping bank robbers who have already shot several deputies and have disabled almost every vehicle that they've come in contact with.
0: When I spoke to Rolf Parks about this, he had no trouble remembering that day. It's almost like he's been replaying the scene over and over again in his head for the last 39 years.
2: And I'm heading on a collision course towards the suspects. And as I'm approaching uh, the area simultaneous to Uh, Doug Borden being shot at and crashing his car. um, I see the suspects coming down the street towards me.
1: But before Rolf has a chance to make any sort of decision or react, the yellow truck comes around the corner and begins rolling directly at him from about 100 yards away.
2: I have no place to go. There's no place to go forward or backwards.
1: And Ralph is basically pinned where he is. He doesn't have time to bail out of his vehicle. He doesn't have time to swing a U-turn.
2: And uh, as I'm watching them come towards me, so I was able to squeeze down to the floor as much as I could and, uh, and, and be fairly low underneath the dashboard. And I get kind of concerned here that they might just decide to ram into the side of my car and, and shoot me. And so the only thing I can do at this point is try to make myself as as little as possible inside the the patrol unit that I was in. And I know that they're coming by, I can hear the engine coming by, and then I hear the rounds hitting the car in front of me, you know, you can hear that boom, boom, you know, and and the sound of the metal um, being penetrated by the bullets. And I, uh, I, I have my left arm sort of covering the, the top of my head, but I'm kind of looking underneath my, the elbow, if you will, with uh, my left eye up at the suspects. And this is kind of where you've heard where time kind of slows down. And I can see these guys looking for me uh, from the back of the uh, pickup. And uh, they're shooting rounds, they're hitting the, the door,
1: his his unit is literally being disintegrating around him he's taking so much gunfire through his windshield into the engine compartment uh, round splintering through the inside of his vehicle but the truck just keeps coming at him at a pretty ominously slow rate of speed Chris Harvin behind the wheel reaches out the window with a handgun at point blank range he fires upon Rolf Parks and then as the truck drifts by, Russell Harvin aims his gun down, his two twenty-three semi semi-automatic, and fires at Rolf. And as they are pulling away, a wounded George Wayne Smith, who's sitting in the back firing over the tailgate, unloads that monster three oh eight Heckler Koch into Rolf's vehicle.
2: You know, I have to say, I, I, I expected to be killed there. I, I did not expect to survive.
0: Obviously, Rolf Parks
1: lived to tell the story. Deputy Rolf Parks came about as close as you can come to dying without being badly injured. A round from a .223 semi-automatic rifle just grazed him right at the hairline, causing an abrasion on the top of his head. One inch lower, and it would have been the proverbial bullet between the eyes. Suddenly, there was silence.
2: And then the only thing you hear is my engine running, you know, and you, you know, like, I start to peek up, look over the, uh, the uh, uh, doorpost, if you would, looking in the back, trying to see if I can see the suspects. Are they out of the car? Did they just park somewhere? But they actually had left the area.
0: The bank robbers and the yellow truck were gone.
2: I checked my head. I can see that I've got some bleeding, you know, And, uh, on the very top of my head, um, my hair is full of glass. My hair, my face is full of glass, but I'm, for all intents and purposes. I'm, I'm okay. I'm still able to fight, if you will. And after gathering myself and uprighting myself, uh, put the car in gear, I make a U-turn and I begin the following of the suspects.
0: Eventually, law enforcement spot the yellow truck. There's a California Highway Patrol officer and a sheriff's deputy behind them, including Rolf Parks, whose patrol car was dissolved by bullets.
1: That's and I'll, I'll tell you something interesting about Parks. Parks is going to be the one who remains in that pursuit the longest uh, for 40 minutes from from where he picked it up to, the, to where it ends, even though he has, uh, in the end, gets two vehicles shot out from under him
0: okay so he's not in he's not using the same vehicle that just got shot up right
1: yeah he continued on that vehicle gets disabled at at another point with a flat tire he bails out jumps into a patrol unit driven by fred chisholm who's a relatively new on the force they continue the pursuit they take additional fire and eventually chisholm's unit is shot out they jump out and jump out of chisholm's unit and jump into a third unit that picks them up so ralph parks was in three different patrol units two of which were uh shot out from under him but that just
0: tells you i mean the intensity of this chase right like this is i mean going on for what seems like forever and like just that description of ralph park jumping from vehicle to vehicle just shows you how insane this was Ralph Parks rejoins the chase ahead, which is pretty freaking crazy considering that he was outgunned.
2: Those those kind of weapons dominate you. And if you have multiple people shooting at you, you're overwhelmed immediately.
0: Every cop who got anywhere near these
1: guys were just shot down. The first one to get hit is Herman Brown, and he turns on to Edawanda as I say, and, you know, just surprised to immediately see this truck headed at him. And he only has time to duck down as gunfire starts coming through his windshield and into his vehicle. And he gets uh, hit in the leg, and he takes hundreds of fragments from uh, bullet fragments into the other leg, but he ducks just in time uh, as a bullet comes through his windshield that when he lowers his head, it actually grazes the back of his neck. Deputy Ken McDaniels, uh, as the truck goes through the intersection, McDaniels is coming from a side street. He turns right behind the truck, immediately gets a round from George Smith's 308 through his windshield. It fragments and he's struck in the shoulder by bullet fragments. And when he pulls over, that exposes Rolf Parks and Rolf, poor, poor Rolf Parks immediately takes a round through his windshield, straight through his windshield.
0: The bank robbers annihilate several police vehicles chasing them. And despite all that, Rolf Parks keeps going after them.
2: So at this point, uh, no one's chasing the suspects except me. So you can see that he's just dialing me in. And the next thing I know, here comes a big round right through the windshield, right over my head, you know, through the car and you know and out the back end.
0: I think if you're listening to this right now, you you must be asking yourself, why didn't they shoot this truck down? Why didn't they put um, you know strips on the road to tear up their tires? I mean, there had to have been a way to stop these guys, right.
1: At that point, uh, well, you'll see in a, in a moment, the, the helicopter joins the pursuit, which kind of changes everything. But this is unfolding so fast, and they are taking so many turns that, that you cannot anticipate where this, where this truck is headed. Uh, additionally, those guys know what they have. They have uh, their handguns are going to do nothing. They're, they're, they're soft-leaded six-shooters. They, they can't even penetrate a vehicle except through a window. <laughs>
0: The yellow truck starts
1: weaving through the side streets of these suburban neighborhoods. And they're literally turning every block to try to shake off cops. But uh, as these pol- patrol units that are coming in from all angles, I mean, everyone in the field is headed towards this pursuit at this point. They are, these vehicles are coming upon this, this truck, you know, headed in the opposite direction with literally no warning. I mean, it's just on them and they immediately start taking fire.
0: Just picture rows of houses, just block after block, with kids coming home from school.
1: There's uh, people out in their yards, watering their lawns, fixing their cars, just talking to each other at the mailboxes. There are school buses that are still passing through the neighborhood. And uh, civilians were caught in crossfire, and they were diving out of the way. Their vehicles were certainly being hit by it. Remember, Manny Delgado
0: just witnessed his brother killed in front of him at the bank. He's pissed.
1: And by all accounts, Manny Delgado was shooting at anything that moved. And at one point, they grazed the finger of a child who was riding a 12-year-old boy who was riding a Stingray bicycle, Um, but mostly this was a case of civilians diving out of the way. A
0: California highway patrolman by the name of Doug Ernest begins following the yellow truck through the suburban streets of Mariloma. He's driving with his head dipped below the dashboard for fear of being shot
1: through the windshield. And uh, he's weaving through the streets and at one point he misses a turn and a child jumps out in the road and says, no, no, they went that way, they went that way. Meanwhile, Rolf
0: Park loses a yellow truck. He's driving block by block looking for any signs of the bank robbers.
2: And I uh, turn eastbound on a parallel street. I didn't go all the way up to them. And I start driving... Eastbound, and I'm kind of wondering, well, did they stop or where did they go?
0: Eventually, Rolf Park spots a yellow truck. The bank robbers are unloading on another deputy's car. George Smith and his men keep moving,
1: leaving the neighborhood and approaching an intersection. When they come to this intersection, in, in about 10 seconds and 100 yards, they end up shooting two deputies and a civilian and about five additional police vehicles
2: continue up the street and the right. The bullets are, are falling all around the side of me as well. My tires are shot out, and I need to pull over. I get out of my car, and Deputy Fred Chisholm uh, was behind me. Uh, he stopped, picked me up. I got into his car, carrying my shotgun. And as soon as we turn, at that point, I see this graveyard of police cars that are all lined up in a row. Um, they're all shot to pieces, if you will. Because at that time, nobody was following them. In this graveyard of cars, you know, everybody was either shot or out of action
4: or rendered to those that were out of action.
0: The robbers jump on the freeway and once again, they're gone. And so what happens next? I mean, so they're they're heading into the mountainside, right? Helicopters chasing them. What happens next?
1: What they do then is they get onto a busy Southern California freeway headed towards the San Gabriel Mountains. Um, It's kind of ironic because that's what they should have done. That's what every bank robber tries to do is is rob a bank and get onto a freeway. These guys took about 20 minutes and nine miles to do it. But they get onto a... Interstate 15 headed north in the direction of Las Vegas, but they are headed for the San Gabriel Mountains. I mean, are they getting away with it? Getting away with it might be a little bit too much because they still got a helicopter right above them, but as they leave Mira Loma, they, they have no police vehicles behind them at that moment. So in the sense of shaking off the pursuing police officers, they had been successful in doing that except for the helicopter as they left Mira Loma.
0: Half a dozen police cars are racing towards the San Gabriel Mountains. Now the the game changes a little bit because the police helicopter shows up. What happens next?
1: Well, of course, this is George Smith's worst nightmare. Uh, You get a helicopter above you. A helicopter is
0: trailing them and Deputy Ralph Parks catches up to the yellow truck
2: I didn't know if they had seen us or not, but we had our overhead rotating lights on and we take up a position behind a a big 18-wheeler. And I was kind of feeling, well, they probably won't shoot the civilian vehicle and we can just hide here and and just kind of keep an eye on which direction they're going. no sooner did I think that that the the suspects are shooting at the 18-wheeler.
0: The 18-wheeler swerves to the right
2: and it's like it's like a curtain had opened. And all of a sudden, there we are, you know, out in the open. And once again, we're getting shot. At. We're getting plowed. The rounds are hitting the windshield. But it's hitting the, the radiator. It's hitting the ground around us. We're going north. We're still going north. And uh, as we're going north, uh, and the uh, fleet of police vehicles from, from everywhere, from uh, CHP, Riverside, uh San Bernardino, Ontario, all kinds of agencies are are piling in behind us.
0: But George Wayne Smith had a few more surprises waiting for the approaching officers. He tosses out something from the back of his truck and boom. Until they threw out the first
1: hand grenade. George Smith begins to toss homemade fragmentation grenades out the back of the truck to try to hold off the police. And several... Law enforcement vehicles, including Rolf Parks's, is hit with shrapnel from fragmentation grenades. And George threw out three grenades on that freeway. There were also civilian vehicles that were getting hit with gunfire.
2: So the CHP officer backed off, and uh, we're still chasing the suspects. Then they throw out a second bomb and you can feel the, the shrapnel from the weapon, from the uh, explosive devices, you know, uh, flaking over the side of the vehicles and such.
1: Chris Harvin also begins to slow the truck to draw some of these uh, vehicles in so that Russ and George and Manny can shoot them at close range. So that's, that's pretty amazing. They're not trying to get away as fast as they can. They're actually slowing down to take out more cops.
0: George Smith fires at the helicopter flying
1: overhead and actually hits it. The pilot of the helicopter is a combat Vietnam vet, and he knows what it sounds like when rounds are going by your, uh, by your aircraft. And he realizes he's being fired on, but, uh, but quickly they take a, a round through the belly of the helicopter, through the electrical equipment, which catches fire and starts to fill the cockpit full of smoke. Interstate 15 is absolutely nuts. Fragmentation grenades, hitting cars from a half mile away, Uh, multiple agencies that can't speak to each other over their radio frequencies, closing in, falling back, shooting down a helicopter. Uh, And that's about a a six or eight mile run up the freeway. Ralph Park's vehicle slowly begins to die.
2: And it became obvious we were going to have to drop out of the chase. The vehicle's not even doing 15 miles an hour. Mm. And that's when uh, Riverside Deputy Sheriff Jim Evans takes over in in the pursuit. Uh, Jim was an experienced Riverside Sheriff. He was also uh, a uh, combat veteran from uh, Special Forces in Vietnam. He takes over the chase and there is a, as I was saying, there was a second San Bernardino Sheriff helicopter that's overhead.
1: Obviously, they've left suburban areas, and they are now kind of in in a more wide open country. And they are heading at the San Gabriel Mountains. And the San Gabriel Mountains are very formidable mountains. They are uh, they rise up from the valley floor abruptly up to heights as as high as ten thousand feet. They are very rugged.
0: They're they're heading into the mountainside, right? A helicopters chasing them. What happens next?
1: But yeah, it's still the Wild West in a lot of ways. Uh, There's not the heavy weapons. The other thing that was hampered this enormously is at this point you had six different police agencies and none of them could speak to each other. They had separate radio bandwidths they were speaking over. If you had a scanner in in your patrol unit, you could hear the other frequencies, but you could not speak to them. And even the San Bernardino helicopter ahead of... Uh, above them, could not speak to the Riverside deputies who were in the pursuit below them, or the oh.
0: CHP. So it's just basically a big game of telephone. And how how close is this uh, helicopter flying? Uh, they're about eight hundred. They're about eight hundred feet above the truck. You may be asking yourself, why doesn't this helicopter just shoot them down? Well, this isn't a combat helicopter. The helicopter's not armed. It's just a way for them to keep track of the yellow truck from the sky. But, you know, it's it's probably been, what, 45 minutes since they left the bank in Norco? Is there any hope that they're gonna get, that the police can stop them now in this
1: wilderness area? These are one lane roads when you start to get up uh, high up Lytle Creek. And um, it becomes a dirt road at about 3,000 feet elevation. And it is a very, very curvy road all the way up to that point. And after that, it's, 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 it's rough going. One
0: detective joked that at this point, the only way they're going to catch these guys is if they run out of ammo or fuel.
2: And so, we're in, so we are the last car in the, in the
0: pursuit at this point.
2: And we're just, you know, following the line of cars. There's probably 30 police cars in front of us.
0: So Jim Evans is Deputy Jim Evans is chasing them up the side of the mountain, right? So, so
1: there's, I'm imagining like switchbacks. Sure. Uh, Let me just say a few things about Jim Evans. He's a Texan. He's a Vietnam veteran, green beret, and uh, he is about 38 years old or so. Um, and Jim Evans is just a, just a super great guy. Soft spoken when he's not on duty and sometimes when he is on duty, wears a, a cowboy hat. Uh, just a, by all accounts, just a really good guy and a cool, cool customer under fire. So as Jim Evans takes the lead in the pursuit, He is communicating with Don Bender, who the narcotics officer with the Claymars, and he is trying to get information on this truck. And he is, of course, taking fire all the way up the canyon, as are the other units. There are now 35 to 40 patrol units chasing this yellow truck strung out behind it in the canyon. So Jim Evans is asking for information and... As he says, what I want to know is if that truck stops, because Chris Harvin had taken to stopping the truck around horseshoe turns or blind curves. And when the officers would come around, George and Russ would open up on it. Ralph Parks is still chasing these guys
0: up the mountain, but he's several cop cars behind. And I'm listening to Sergeant Bender. I'm listening to Jim
2: Evans, and I can see... You can you can tell that the suspects are in a windy road area, and that they're stopping somewhere close to the winds in the in the road, and they're waiting for the units. In this case, Jim Evans to come around the corner, and then and then trying to pick them off as he came around. You know, Jim would stop, let let them give give them some more space, and the and the chase went like this for. I don't know, maybe another five minutes or so.
1: So they fell back a little bit, but uh, but Jim Evans is asking constantly, I, you know, where are they? I, I need to know if they stop, you know. I, I don't want to get ambushed. And uh, it takes about 20 seconds for Bender to get a report from the helicopter, switch over to Evans and give him a report. So there's a lag of about 15 seconds on the communication. And that does prove to be tragic in the end for, uh, for the officers.
0: And for the first time in this entire fiasco, the cops leveled the playing field. An officer named DJ McCarty grabs an M16 out of the evidence locker and makes his way to the front of the pursuit. He's driving as fast as he can, telling all the cops ahead of him to just get out of the way.
1: McFerrin was driving like a bat out of hell, radioing everybody in front of them and saying, gotta get out of our way, we got an automatic, we get into the front. Other agencies picked up on it and most of them were moving out of the way. By the time they reach this very narrow fire road, the only person in front of them is Jim Evans. And the pursuit now heads up this fire road, clinging to the side of a extremely steep mountainside. At one point, the yellow truck is headed up a steep grade. The driver, Chris
0: Harvin, looks ahead and notices that the entire road has been washed out in a landslide. The robbers stop the yellow truck and jump out. They line up and they're just waiting for the police units to come around the corner. The helicopter sees this and
1: radios Jim Evans to stop. Jim Evans does not get the signal from the radio in time. He comes around the corner and straight into uh, gunfire from, from, uh, from the four guys, uh, three of them firing semi-automatic rifles. So he slams his car to a stop about 70 feet behind the yellow truck and rounds immediately come through his windshield and he, he makes a last uh, cry into the microphone, dives out of his unit and uh, draws his service revolver. And now he's behind his front door and he begins firing on the, uh, on the four men who are by the truck.
0: Was he, was he hit?
1: Evans gets off six rounds from his revolver and one of them hits Chris Harvin in the back up by the shoulder blade. It's actually a remarkable shot for someone to hit a target that far away while under heavy fire. But by this time, Jim Evans is backed up to the rear of his vehicle, he ducks down, he uses a speed loader to reload his chambers, and he comes up from behind his uh, the trunk of his car to resume firing, and he is struck in the eye by uh, a round from a two twenty-three and uh, he dies instantly.
0: Deputy D.J. McCarty finally
1: arrives with the M16 rifle. D.J. McCarty is still in the passenger seat of his vehicle when it slams to a stop behind Jim Evans, and he sees Jim Evans get shot and killed directly in front of him. And in almost that same volley, rounds come through his windshield, and they strike uh, McCarty in the elbow. McCarty jumps out of his vehicle without the M16, and there is so much fire coming down on him at that point that he attempts to to dig a hole and get underneath his patrol unit on this road. When he's unable to do that, he reaches up, he grabs the M16, he drags it out, he tries to get the clip in. It keeps falling out because he doesn't know exactly how to use it. But at, at that point, uh, according to his own testimony later on, he jumped up, held up the M16 and uh, sort of swept it back and forth across the road uh, with his eyes closed. He said he was so afraid of getting oh. hit. Uh-huh. It's McCartney's gunfire that eventually drives the bank robbers off, the four surviving bank robbers. And they turn around and start heading up the hill and they kind of clamber over that landslide. Chris Harvin is shot in the back, uh, but he is still able to keep moving. George Smith has, by some accounts, lost a third of his blood supply through a shot high up in the groin area, but he continues on. Russell Harvin uh, has a pellet under his scalp, but he's, uh, for all intents and purposes, he's okay, but he's a diabetic and he did not bring any insulin with him. Uh, Manny Delgado is unharmed and he continues up the road.
0: Deputy Ralph Parks arrives at the scene and starts shooting at the suspects.
2: And uh, I'm getting out of my car and I'm looking at this. And I've got the rifle in my hand. And it's a forested area, so I didn't have a, a great shot or anything, but I walked to the front of my car, you know, without trying to, to do anything safe. And I, I just started shooting at them and it became kind of prob- problematic for me to try and shoot without hitting trees. So I run to the back of the car and try to pick them up there and there's more trees to the back than there are in the front. And, uh, I, I can't even get off another round. I keep going down the hill, to try and find a better, better way to shoot at the suspect. And there's a, a bend in that dirt road and they, they turn the end, uh, end of going to their right. And they're now all of a sudden they're out of my view. And at this point, I feel really kind of devastated that I, I really didn't get, you know, to return fire, uh, as much as I wanted to. You know, I, that still kind of haunts me today, you know, that I, I couldn't, uh, give them a piece of, piece of my mind as well. The chase is over at this point.
0: Again, the robbers got away. It's now nightfall, and it's cold as hell. The sunlight fades behind the mountains. Snow and freezing rain begin to fall. At that point, you know, are you thinking to yourself, did they get away with this?
2: Yeah, you gotta wonder, are they gonna get away with this? I gotta say, we just took the the biggest ass kicking we'd ever had. I think law enforcement, I don't know if any other way to describe it, but like, It was like the biggest ass-kicking that that any agent could have in in the course of uh, a day's work or any time.
0: They got away, and despite his desire to keep chasing them, Ralph Parks was forced to stop and was airlifted to receive medical attention. The next morning began one of the largest manhunts in California history.
1: The San Bernardino sheriff who are leading the manhunt, and they ask for these specialized uh, SWAT teams, and these are two-man teams with, uh, with a with with one commander that are referred to as the hunt and kill teams. They have one member who is carrying a shotgun, one who is carrying a long-range, high-powered 308 rifle, and uh, and then a, a commander who is uh, who is sort of uh, leading them and deploying them to certain areas. And uh, there's over 250 involved in this manhunt. Uh, that commences at first light the next day. I mean,
0: this is a big moment because for the first time, the robbers are not armed to the teeth, right? Like it's more of a level playing field at this it,
1: point, right? Yeah, they had thrown away their heavy weapons. Uh, they really didn't have, for all the shooting that they did, they realized at this point they just needed to escape. They were not going to fight their way out of this uh, out of this canyon. Chris and his brother Russ Harvin didn't put up a fight. Uh, Chris was shot. Russ was uh, having uh, diabetic uh, symptoms and they began just walking out of the canyon and they were picked up by some sheriff's deputies down in the Lytle Creek uh, bed.
0: The other robber, Manny Delgado, had been making his way
1: through the rugged hillside. And at at first light, he was under a very thick, uh, stand of manzanita bushes that went above, uh, above his head, and you could only really crawl to get through them. And he was lying face down uh, holding a .38 uh, handgun uh, when a helicopter came over him and uh, with the blades of the uh, rotor, the um, or the, the wind created from that, the bushes parted and they caught a glimpse of Manny and they spotted him down there. Uh, Manny Delgado rises up a little bit. They see the gun in his hand and uh, John View fires three times. Glenn Bartholomew fires three, three uh, shotgun blasts and uh, Manny Delgado is... Uh, is hit by all of them. They determine that he was killed from a round from a 38 straight through his heart. Self-inflicted gunshot wound through the heart. It is likely that Manny Delgado fell on his own gun.
0: This is Detective Dvorak again. He's the voice you heard in part one during the George Smith confession tape
4: next morning, I show up at the command post, and they say that uh, I saw some movement up under a brush, and it was a San Bernardino PD SWAT team that had been in these canyons, and uh, they were above, they got dropped in the canyon at, up at the top, and they were going downhill, and down below them they saw some movement in a bush which turned out to be George Smith. And he had been shot three times. He was laying there and he'd been out in the cold and the the temperatures were around zero. It had rained in the night. It it had snowed at night. It had uh, been windy. They they said that his uh, poncho that he was wearing was covered with snow. So they put me in a helicopter and said, you take these two San Bernardino sheriff SWAT guys and go up there and go over them and cover them while they go in and handcuff this guy.
0: Detective Dvorak had to figure out a way to get
1: George Smith off the side of the mountain. When Dvorak sees Smith, he genuinely feels that Smith may die on that mountainside. And he's got a handheld recorder so he immediately starts asking Smith questions.
4: So, I turned on my tape recorder when I got there and introduced myself and told him who I was and what I was wanting and
3: George, under from sheriff's homicide. You
4: understand that? And, you know His concern was, I need medical treatment, and I said st- I understand that, but I need some information also.
1: And George Smith starts to give information, although he is very weak, and he asks repeatedly that he wants to go to sleep.
4: I was surprised he was even talking. I thought. When I first, from the helicopter, saw him laying under the bush before before I landed, I thought he was dead. When I was talking to him initially, my game plan wasn't to put together a court case. We still had outstanding suspects up in the canyon. And they were armed with a lot of uh, heavy rifles and so on, military-grade rifles. I'm trying to save another cop from getting killed.
0: What's your full name? George Smith. Smith In the tape we could hear the helicopter It sounded like, was it like flying overhead?
4: Cold, it was foggy It was absolutely miserable up there And it was real rough, ragged, steep terrain
0: But there's no way for that helicopter to, to land there So you had to take him down And he couldn't have been airlifted?
4: Not at that point no. They didn't have the equipment they have now.
0: I'm tape recording
3: this conversation. You're aware of that? No. I kept my breath. Okay. You're aware I'm tape recording the conversation, right? Okay, he nodded his head. Do you realize that you have a bullet in your back? you realize that, correct? There's a possibility that you may die. you realize that? that in mind. Do you want to tell me anything about what happened?
4: We'll talk, we'll talk. And we had a couple slips where, you know, where he slipped. He, he couldn't basically do anything by himself. We basically were carrying him. And two men or three men of rest trying to go down that hill is ridiculous. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's rough. So it was probably gonna be about, on best case scenario, a 30 minute hike down the hill before we actually uh, were able to get him on a helicopter.
3: We're gonna do what we can, George, but the helicopter can't land here and we've got quite a ways to walk before we can get you to where you're gonna be picked up. Do you understand that? How much longer? Probably about
4: a five-minute hike down the hill. Oh, goodness. Now, he looked bad. I mean, I'm surprised he even made it. But I I, rather than give him the traditional Miranda rights, I informed him, hey, George, you may be dead before we get you down this hill.
3: What happened, George? I got three on my leg. Yeah. Three rounds in your leg? Yeah. Where did you get the three rounds in your leg? at, that. at the bank. At the Bank of Norco? Yeah. keeps saying pass out
4: on us, so why don't we I I gave him what they call a dying declaration, which is uh, it's uh, the courts have accepted it, saying that basically if a person thinks he's going to die. Or he may be dying. He has no real reason to lie to you at that point.
3: Did you get in a shootout with the cops in a bank in Norco, the Security Pacific Bank? How many of you were there? Five. What were their names? Chris, Bill, May, George, and Russ.
4: Yourself, meaning George. Right. You know their last names?
3: Carvin and Delgado.
4: Me. little by little he started feeding the information and we would what happened as it went on we'd go down the hill a ways probably not not more than 40 50 feet at a time and then he'd be like yeah I, I gotta stop i gotta stop you know so we'd set him down and take a break and then i'd turn the tape recorder back on and I said, okay, George, now you're taking a break, you know, you got your wind, let's pop some more.
3: Do you know that an officer has been killed? I'm telling you now, an officer has been killed and you'll be taken into custody in San Bernardino County for the murder of one officer. Did you see them kill the officer? No. Did you fire at any officers in this canyon area? You did? I thought, but it was who killed
0: the Chris and Russ Harvin were taken down for questioning and they were interrogated separately.
1: Chris Harvin has the bullet in his back, but he is uh, speaking normally at this point. Chris Harvin really goes into the background and the motivations of why they robbed this bank. And for Chris Harvin, it's really that, uh, you know, These guys were all in desperate situations of one point or another. But it's Chris Harvin's contention that George Wayne Smith uh, pretty much bullied him into it. Uh, He wanted to back out and and, uh, George would call him a yellow belly and a coward. And uh, that he kind of just went along with it and doesn't even really know why.
0: And, you know, a lot of these officers, um, even today, 35 years later, are still Traumatized
1: by the events that happened, could you uh, tell us about that? It's really the human element that attracted me to this story, uh, rather than the bang bang shoot 'em up. Uh, as astonishing as the pursuit and the robbery itself was, uh, the, uh, there's a human side to this. That is, you know, part triumphant, part tragic. Certainly, the death of uh, Jim Evans is, is a, was a huge loss. But these deputies, really, many of them, went on their own journeys after, uh, due to post-traumatic stress disorder. Even Gary Keeter,
0: who is behind the dispatch mic, is still haunted by the events of that day. There's
2: something that has reminded him of NARCO, of course, every year on the anniversary. I really remember NARCO, especially, but I remember it every day.
1: NARCO is widely recognized as being a gateway event to what is now known as the militarization of local police forces. The deputies were so woefully outgunned that it was really uh, a wake-up call that convinced uh, the local law enforcement there to begin with that they needed to uh, get better, more powerful weapons into the field.
2: Riverside Sheriffs today now has a modern communication system uh, that uh, can communicate with uh, everybody and uh, they also have uh, a SWAT team they also have uh, a helicopter bureau of their own and they have a a bomb disposal unit so you know everything that uh, they have today is what uh, was necessary Back then, only it didn't exist.
0: George Wayne Smith is currently incarcerated in Richard J. Donovan Penitentiary in San Diego, California.
1: And there's no question that George had this dual personality, and it even appeared during the trial at certain points. On one on one side, he is he, he has this religiosity, a deep faith in, in the Christian faith. Uh, He continues to help people in prison the way he did before he went to prison. Uh, But he also continues to have that side of a personality that uh, has a a big streak of arrogance, uh, that he's a bit of a know-it-all, that he knows more than everybody else, and that his needs are more important than those around him.
0: Author Peter Houlihan
1: has had contact with George Smith over the years. It took George years and years before he uh, before he finally acknowledged uh, the damage that he had caused, and he did that in a letter to me. I think George, you know, George is certainly an introspective guy. I'm sure he's thought about it a lot. There was no question he was very sorry it had ever happened. Uh, again, he did not foresee his consequences or did not care enough to uh, to think through. Uh, what this could do to others' lives. And uh, I think over time, George has come to learn that. But uh, I do not think his two personality sides have diminished much at all.
0: It's a tragedy that Jim Evans had to die because George Wayne Smith's twisted interpretation of the Bible. But at the same time, it's also remarkable that many officers made it out alive. Here's Rolf Parks one last time.
2: Well, I'm glad you're still with us. I am too. So I'm glad that the story is being told because I got to say for years, you know, it was like the greatest story that was never told and now it's being told. And so I'm happy that this is happening in my lifetime, if you will, because it happened 39 years ago.
0: I urge you to buy a copy of Peter Houlihan's book titled Norco AD: the true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in American history. You might think I gave it all away, but trust me, what you heard in these last two episodes is only half the book. The next half of the book covers a trial. A trial, you ask? Why would these guys need a trial? Isn't it obvious that they were the people who did it? Oh, and what about the rumors of a six bank robber that was never caught? And George Wayne Smith ends up representing himself. There's even a bizarre sex scandal that breaks out in the middle of the trial. There were reports that one of the investigators was pleasuring George Smith behind closed doors. Crazy stuff. This is by far one of the best books I've read in a long time. And it's Peter Houlihan's first attempt as an author. He knocked it out of the park. Everyone I spoke to praises his attempt to capture every angle of this story as accurately as possible. Please do yourself a favor and grab a copy of this book. I'll have a link in the show notes. Next time on Pretend. George Wayne Smith, the Norco bank robber, wasn't exactly pretending to be someone else. He could just easily switch between two distinct personalities. We're gonna meet someone else who lived a double life, a well-respected psychologist who was a bit of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde character. Here's his wife, Jan, telling me about his affair with a prostitute named Don.
4: Part of the being drawn to a prostitute is you're not going to be rejected. It's very easy access. It's almost guaranteed access as long as you have money. He he could go down there and he could be in control and he could slip into a different role, be somebody that he really wasn't. And he had a guaranteed audience, somebody to look up to him, somebody that needed him, which is all of what I used to be, but wasn't anymore.
0: Jan Canty recalls how she discovered her husband's secret life, and it's pretty shocking. That's the next episode, and it's coming out soon, I promise. You may have noticed that season four already has nine episodes out. This is typically around the time when I take a few months off to prepare for the new season, but I'm not doing that this time. I'm just going to take two weeks off, and I already have nine plus episodes lined up for you guys, and it's pretty awesome. So we're just going to keep this train rolling. And I want to thank everyone who left the review on Apple Podcasts, This week's t-shirt winners are at SuzyFries1 at brandora 911 and at Tim750 who says he wishes Pretend was a weekly show. Ha! That's not going to happen. But good try, buddy. Are you trying to kill me or something? But you're getting a t-shirt anyway. If you want one of these screen-printed Pretend shirts, write a post on social media and tell your friends why you love Pretend. Make sure you tag me, And I will randomly pick a winner and send you a shirt. So write a post, tag me, and well, you know how it works. Thank you again for everyone who supports the show. If you want early access to episodes without any commercials, sign up for Patreon at pretendradio.org and click the donate button. Okay, guys, talk to you soon.
3: Creative Babble